Um, verse 7 of chapter 6, uh, we're getting into a really neat part where Jesus is giving a teaching and he's turned his attention to prayer. Remember, he's working his way through things. Uh, he's correct. His first ministry, uh, public ministry, he goes right after what we're doing wrong. <laughs> and he goes right after the people who are teaching people to do things wrong. I do remind you that, once again, uh, Jesus never criticized the homosexuals, the adulterers, or the thieves, or any of that. Who he went after was the religious leaders who were teaching people the wrong things. Using God instead of being used by God. Well, at least trying to. And he has turned his attention to what they were doing wrong with prayer and what it had become and what they were what the people were seeing the religious leaders do and he, he I mean this is a public criticism don't, don't lose sight of that please uh, the verse before it he opens up but when you pray go into your inner room close your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what it is what is done in secret will reward you and we went through that saying you know that's not saying there's you shouldn't have corporate prayer corporate prayers everywhere but when it's between you and him, it's between you and him. And it's not a opportunity to show how righteous you are to other people. It's an opportunity to be humble before God. And those are two widely different things. Uh, so then we move on to verse 7. And, it said, and Jesus says this, continuing on regarding prayer and how to pray. How he wants us to pray. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose, they believe, that they will be heard for their many words. As if there's righteousness in volume. Uh, prayer is not a magic incantation. It never was. Where you, If you repeat the right words in the right order, the right number of times, you get what you want. Like, God hears you um, magically. Uh, we do not conjure up the favor of God with just the right words. Honesty, sincerity, and humility are what turn his ear towards us. How many Hail Marys or rosaries does it take to impress God? Uh, well, apparently, a priest decides that and tells you how many you should do, and then it'll work. And, you know, I honestly, I mean, you um, never hear me bash the Catholics. It's they're trying to find God also and uh, it's just the example that's right sitting right there in front of me and I, I can't not use it um, uh, we can can we force or even coerce or annoy God into listening to us and granting our petitions this is not speaking to not giving up when you don't see a response to your prayer don't take this too far uh, this is speaking to actually believing that you can force God's hand by the application of sheer volume, by what you do and how you do it instead of the heart of it. Jesus prayed the same prayer three times in a row in uh, Matthew 26, 44. Uh, Paul said that he had prayed three times the same prayer for the thorn to be removed from his flesh. Both times, the Lord's will prevailed over the request. Uh, and both times, God answered. Um, you know, uh, Jesus prayed for the cup to be passed. Uh, Paul prayed for the thorn to be removed. Um, neither of those things occurred. 
neither Jesus nor Paul was attempting to manipulate God with volume or impress him with numbers. They were sincerely seeking an answer. And it's interesting, the, the answer that Paul got was, my grace is sufficient for you. You got what you need. Um, scripture tells us to pray without ceasing. Jesus even gave a parable about coming before God again and again. Remember that this parable was about an unjust judge and a persistent widow seeking justice, trying to get what is right. You know, because you can, if you let your mind go, you can see a conflict between what Jesus just said here and the parable that Jesus, and I'm going to read the parable, uh, gave about coming before the judge again and again. If you just keep doing it, he will listen. Um, uh, it's about not losing faith. Not a teaching about annoying God so much that he does your will just to make you go away. That's, that was never the point of the parable. If God wants you to go away, you'll go away. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't need to do your will to make you go away. I mean, if he wants you away, you're away. Uh, Luke 1.18, uh, about that parable, it starts with this. And this, this, I don't have to read the whole parable, because this one tells you what the parable means. It's the one where Jesus said, you know, the woman seeks justice, the judge wouldn't hear her, so she come back again and again and again. He said, truly, I tell you, the judge will listen just to make her shut up. Um, but the first voice, verse of Luke 18 tells us this. Now, he was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. That's the reason of that. I mean, Jesus starts the parable with telling you why the parable is there. So don't let this parable bleed into what Jesus just said about, you know, repeated prayers and all that sort of thing. It's two different things. It doesn't say there's our magic words or a magic number of repetitions that make God respond. It's not how many times you pray. It's what you pray for and how. The faith is in God, not in the number of times that you prayed. Meaningless rep repetition is the quote, meaningless. Repetition, in and of itself, is not meaningless. It's when you try to replace sincerity and honesty with volume that it becomes meaningless. Remember, prayer is for you. You're not telling God anything he doesn't know. So don't waste his precious opportunity chanting. That basically is what you're doing. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 2 says this. Guard your steps as you go into the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulse or, or, of, or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Uh, respect who God is. Don't use uh, prayer as an opportunity to express who you are to the congregation. Uh, that's what? never been what the point. That, verse? that was Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 2. Now, as far as, now there was a little caveat up there, as the Gentiles do, <laughs> the non-Jews. We have a nice um, 
a poignant example of that in 1 Kings 18, 25 through 28. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Uh, they are having this throwdown. They finally come out in public in front of everybody and they're having it out. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. They took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they made. It came about at noon, probably six hours later, that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he is occupied or gone aside. There's When occupied, there's a, a line of teaching that says what Elijah is saying, and maybe he's in the bathroom. You know, maybe, maybe your god's in the bathroom right now and he's busy. Um, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and needs awakened. So they cried out with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out of them. So they were trying to make God do something by what they were doing instead of humbling themselves and letting God know what they wanted, but always ending with, your will not mine. So verse 8, that's what we're not supposed to be like, um, said, so do not be like them who the Gentiles for your father knows what you need before you ask him Jesus tells us not to pray like they do rather pray like this understand that this is God telling us how he wants us to talk to him in Luke 11 Jesus repeats this teaching after the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray not teach us a prayer See, this, this teaching is given twice at two different times uh, about prayer. Apparently, later, when they ask him, he tells them this, and this is pretty clear. And then later, they ask him, how should we pray? Well, he, don't, he just told them how they're supposed to pray. So apparently, they did not remember what Jesus taught on the mount about prayer, or they wanted a specific prayer to repeat and Jesus simply repeated his original teaching on the matter. It still holds true. Once again, okay, I'm going to tell you again what I told you last time. And from Luke, it, it goes more like this. Luke 11, 1 through 4. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. See, we want something that we think that's magic that God will listen to um, uh, just the right words and it's not about that it never has been and he said to them when you pray say father hallowed be your name your kingdom come give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not to temptation it's the condensed version of what we're doing without the uh, teaching after every verse. But it's basically the same thing. I'm not sure if when he does that they remember, didn't he tell us this once before? Uh, so before Jesus teaches us how to pray, he teaches us how not to pray. 
Because remember, here, he's telling us what we shouldn't be doing. And there in Luke, he's telling us what we should be doing. And it's the same basic teaching. Uh, if you don't do that, you're going to do this. Then he gives a piece of info that we should always remember. God knows what you need before you pray. God does not need to hear our prayers. We need to say them and to ask him for his assistance. Prayer, once again, is an act of humility before God. As I have noted many times, this is not the Lord's prayer. This is the disciples' prayer. Teach us to pray a prayer, and Jesus says this. Uh, the Lord's prayer, as always, is this. Father, your will, not mine. That's Jesus' prayer. So then he goes and says to them, after how not to pray, remember, that's the theme here. Uh, this is what the law says. This is what you're doing. This is how you should be doing it. This is that. This is what you're doing wrong. This is how to do it right. Each one of these, uh, prayer, fasting, and, you know, and giving to the poor. All three of those things, he goes right down there. Pray then in this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Um, we've gone through this before, and I'd like to think that uh, most of you have understanding of this and the importance of thinking about these words when we say them every Sunday. And I know Kevin uh, goes out of his way to make sure that we do. It's very important that this doesn't become a ritual. Uh, Jesus does not say repeat this, what he basically said in this way. Uh, pray in this manner. Uh, these are the things you should focus on. There's nothing where he says repeat this. But of course, we being us, you know, our Father. Jesus makes it very clear that we should identify God as our Father. That's how he wants to be identified. Uh, that's what he calls himself. So that we can have an understanding of who God is to us. God created genders so he could use genders as a means of knowing who he is to us and who we are to him. Uh, it is hard for me to understand God and his love without the concept of Father. Uh, now, I know that not everybody has had the same experience. But what I know from the good things my father has done, I've also learned what a father should be from the things that he missed on. And I have, I'm not complaining. I don't have a complaint about my father. Uh, but the truth of the matter is you learn from both sides. When, when you compare it to God, you know, I, I surely have not been a father as good as God has been a father to me. And so there's always that reflection back where I'm learning what a father should have been, and then I know who God is a little bit deeper. In chapter 6 alone, Jesus refers to God as Father 12 times. Despite the cultural implications of this uh, uh, misogynistic conduct of men throughout history, and I acknowledge it, we have no authority to change who God proclaims he is to us. Um, I understand why people want to take Father out of this and just say God. But remember, we asked Jesus, well, how do you want us to pray to you? And he tells us, and then people tell us, no, no, Jesus got it wrong. <laughs> That's not how we should do it. And I, I, once again, I'm fully acknowledging the failures of men.
uh, my response has always been this. You change people. You don't change God. Uh, and it's easier to change God for them. Uh, because it's hard to know, to be able to talk about uh, the word Father in a way that deals with the conduct of men. It requires study. It requires effort. So it's easier just to say, well, let's not call him Father anymore. Some think they can change people by changing who God is. So if we don't call God Father anymore, then people will change. They'll stop being, uh, you know, treating women the way they do. No, they won't. Uh, only the Father and Son can change people. Now, the word hallowed, we say it every Sunday. It's not a word I've ever used, and as far as I know, anything but the Lord's Prayer in my entire life. I don't think I've ever used that. Uh, uh, isn't that in the Gettysburg Address or something like that? I don't know. Uh, which means to make holy, to set it apart, something that is sanctified, different, more than common, something greater. Uh, Begin prayer by proclaiming who God is to you, why he listens and responds to you because of who he is to you. Then proclaim who he is in general, which is why he can answer your prayers. So the one tells us that he wants to answer your prayers, and the other tells you he can't. Father tells you he wants to, and hallowed means he can. Uh, both why he would... He is our Father, and why He could. He's God Almighty. And it's just in one sentence, and you're acknowledging that every time you do it. In the next line, in verse 10, it says, this is what God wants to hear. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Do we really think about that when we pray it? Um, there's some sermons there, built right into that one little line. God does not need our approval or our encouragement for his will to be done here. He's God. His will is destined to be done. Maybe some of the Jews consider this to be a prayer for the, for the political independence of Israel. Because in our little minds, as soon as he said that line, they went, aha, the kingdom coming. And for them, the kingdom coming is Israel becoming a great nation that rules the world. It's so much more than that. Jesus knew what was coming for Israel as a nation. Remember, he wept over it as he entered Jerusalem for the last time. He knows what they're thinking and he knows how wrong they are when he says this. By praying this, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as in heaven, we encourage ourselves to be by joyfully acknowledging the inevitable conclusion for this world and all in it the inevitable and glorious conclusion. All the things that are going on, all the things we just prayed for. Um, uh, national down to the neighbor. This is us telling God that we trust him. And we look forward to his plan for mankind and this world to be completely fulfilled. This line is a proclamation of hope and faith. We usually pray this after our specific prayer request. It's the last thing we do before we move on to a hymn and a sermon or whatever. We tell God what we want from Him, 
what we'd like him to do for us. And then we pray, your will be done. It is saying we trust your judgment in all matters, even if it's not the answer we wanted to our specific prayers. With these four words, we say to God that we have faith in him to put our small picture request in line with his big picture plan. In other words, what we're saying when we say, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, we're saying that, Lord, I see everything that's wrong. I see every problem I have. I see, every, I see this world. But I know you got this. Um, I, I know how this ends, and I look forward to it. We tell him what we want to happen, then acknowledge that what he wants to happen takes precedence. That's what this is. It's saying, your will be done. It's that great line. It's that great phrase. It's the prayer of prayers. Your will be done. With these words, we proclaim, I want what you want more than anything else, no matter what it is. It's an expression of spiritual yearning. This says, we do not fear God's plan for man. We look forward to it being completed. There's no fear in this. This is something we want. It's something we desire. Do you think this is the end times? I really hope so. You know, I, I cannot tell you how every time something like this happens, like Ukraine or... How many Christians come up to me and say, do you think this is end times? And I mean, you could feel the panic in their voice and the concern. Uh, I hope so. You know, good. I mean, wouldn't that be great? And because we think we're losing something and what this is proclaiming everything gets better from there uh we want you to come here and take this fix what we screwed up put it back to how it should be uh okay where was it the time will come when heaven and earth will be indistinguishable from one another oh man the will of man will become the will of God by choice. <sighs> How can that not be good? In the end, I told you this before, but it's really the truth. Everybody gets what they wanted. Here Jesus tells us to tell God that we're looking forward to it. We are. We, we trust you. We look forward to it. We know you got this. And we know you're going to do what you said you're going to do. And we want it to happen. Acts 21, 11 through 14. Abagus the prophet speaking. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul. Then Paul answered. <laughs> Here's that line being played out in life. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since he would not be persuaded... We fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Uh, it's much along the lines of Peter telling Jesus, May heaven forbid that you go into Jerusalem and he'd step behind me, Satan. 
you're not going to take that line out of my prayer. It belongs there. Daniel 4.35, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, epiphany. When Nebuchadnezzar comes to the realization, when everything that God did in his life finally comes to fruition, and he has the aha moment where the spiritual light bulb goes on. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. But he has done according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. He realizes that God's already doing what he's supposed to be doing. I mean, they're not exactly the same yet, but God's hand is anywhere God wants his hand to be. And no one could ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Psalms 135, 5-6 For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth and in the seas and all the deeps. So, basically what he's saying is God's already doing it, but there will be a time when it will be so obvious and he will reconcile both so that there is nothing different on heaven and earth. Uh, when sin has been vanquished, and what we're saying is, we know that you're going to do this. We're glad you're going to do this. And we applaud it. Mm. Revelations 11.15. This is what we pray for every Sunday. The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in the heavens saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That's what we're praying for when we say that line in the Lord's Prayer. That right there. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. He has come down and taken over. Uh, the time of the free will of man is gone. Revelations 12, 9 through 10. The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and the Satan, who has deceived the whole world, was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. When we say, Your kingdom come, your will be done, we're acknowledging this is going to happen, and we're saying we're glad. For the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them before God night and day. Verse 11. He moves on. We have acknowledged who God is. We have acknowledged the greatness of God, the power of God, the plan of God. And so now Jesus turns to us. And he says, give us this day our daily bread. Um, I don't have a concept of daily bread. I don't know if any of us do, um, where we've been to the point where I only have bread for today, and I'm not sure if I'll have bread for tomorrow. Uh, I've never been there. I mean, I've never, I mean, there were times when I definitely was not rich, but I have never uh, been to that point. This is the only provision for temporal life in this prayer. Of all the things we pray for, and it's always important to ask yourself, what do I pray for the most? Yeah, I mean, self-survey you know what i mean honestly what is it what i'm praying what do i pray for most of the time and uh i find myself very disappointed with the answer uh i find that possibly most of the time i'm just annoying god uh and 
it's humbling. It really is. Because this, <laughs> when we ask him, how should we pray? This is it. This is the only worldly thing that Jesus says you should really be praying for. We need to ask ourselves, what portion of our prayers to, to God deal with worldly concerns? There is a need to be alive for the other points to be relative. I understand that. If you're dead, these other things aren't, don't need to be prayed for. It speaks to enough for the immediate need. It does not speak to abundance. It does not speak to abundance. Because with abundance comes moral responsibility to share. Abundance is its own teaching. It's been a while since I did that. I guess I'm due to do that again. Uh, about giving and abundance and those sort of things. What I really want is for God to give me so much bread, I don't have to pray for or think about it tomorrow. That's what I really want. Or the next day. Or ever again. That's why when the lottery hits 500 million, my dumb butt goes out and buys tickets. Wow. Uh, you know, I know it's stupid when I do it, but I do it. And I just... Yeah, anyway. But Jesus' words here preclude me from praying for this. Jesus is basically telling you, don't do that. I don't want to rely on God all the time. I want to live in the delusion that I can take complete care of myself and those I love. I don't want to have faith. I want abundance that doesn't require faith. Faith is hard. Faith is annoying. Faith means I don't have something. However, that's not what reality is. I must have faith because I am not capable of controlling circumstances. Just my reaction to them. This verse proclaims what I should be at peace with, even if it's not always what I am at peace with. It proclaims the standard, if not the accomplishment. And every time I pray it, it challenges my faith and my spiritual maturity. Every time I say those words, hmm, I try to say them with sincerity. But most of the time I realize there's always a part of me that holding back a little bit. Because it's not really what I want. Oh, I want them to provide, but not just my daily bread. God provided for his people in the wilderness day by day. They were not permitted to store what they gathered, to trust in their surplus instead of God. This tells us not to forget that our very survival is in the hands of the Lord and as a request for God to keep us humble. Don't let me have so much that I forget about you. This speaks more to than just food. It speaks to every part of our reality of need. We live in a sinful, fallen world. In a sinful, fallen world, there's need. We have changed what the word need means in our hearts and minds. What was need, even just a generation ago, isn't what need is now. God has not adopted our change in the meaning. Just because we think it's a need, it doesn't mean he does. We really don't want him to show us why we are wrong. When you're cold, hurt, hungry, the Penguins games being removed from Dish TV becomes less of a serious matter. It really does. I mean, 
does that really matter at all? God knows how to adjust our attitude. So my advice as a pastor, not someone who always does it, but knowing what's right if not doing what's right is don't make him do it as much as you can. Humble yourself and pray this prayer with sincerity. Proverbs 30, 8-9 through 9. Keep deception alive far from me. It starts, I believe it starts with this I ask of you, Lord. Keep deception alive far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, not the portion. Every one of us is different. That I may not full, be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Like, why do I need him? Or that I may be in want and steal and profane the name of God. Hosea 13, 6. As they had their pastures, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their hearts became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. What we're doing is we're praying when we say, give us our daily, our daily bread. We're asking him to protect us from this. Lord, you know what will cause me to forget about you. Don't let it happen. It's kind of sad that we have to do that. But it's wonderful that he knows it and still provides for it. For our lack of character. Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 14, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I commanded you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied, and you have built good houses and live in them, when everything's fine, when you need nothing, and when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It doesn't say you may. It says you will. And he means it that way. It's what we do. This is why we pray, give us this day our daily bread. First Timothy five, 6, 5-10, through 10, Paul writes, The constant friction between men of depraved minds and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, in other words, using spirituality to make money. But godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. <laughs> when you're not worried about money. If we have brought nothing into this world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction when you pray for more when you're asking God for more than your daily bread when you're asking him give me this give me that make me this make me that this is what happens For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Contentment with your worldly status is the foundation of personal peace. Um, contentment with what you have is a gift from God, no matter what that is. Uh, Verse 26 through 
through 35 uh, expand and explain these the six words of this prayer. Uh, so he teaches us this. He goes on to the another teaching, and then later at the end of the chapter, he goes back to this and teaches more about it. And we'll, when we get there, just remember that there's more. To, he has more to say about this. Um, so if there aren't any questions, uh, we will wrap it up there on verse 12. Anything that anybody wants to bring up or point out? Hey, Jeff. What's up? Um, the daily bread. Okay. It's not, uh, do you feel it's not only what your physical food is, is his, because he's the bread of life? Um, you could go that way, but I honestly think he's addressing a Just worldly need. Yeah, because, once again, how much of our praying <laughs> is focused on that, brother? You know, right. and he knows us. Um, yeah, I, I, you could surely go deeper on it if you wanted to and use it as an example in, in a sermon or a teaching, and there, you right. wouldn't be wrong. But I honestly do believe that this is addressing... Your physical being. Uh, yeah, because how much of our prayers are focused around that? You know, and he knows right. that. I mean, he's the one we're praying to. Yeah, he knows what, what our mind's on. Yeah. What did I just say? Verse 12, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Mark, it's an interesting point. Um, sometimes, and, and I've been guilty of this myself, there's such a thing of just not seeing what was exactly said and trying to f over-spiritualize it, which I don't think that would be doing. But honestly, the real value in this to me is dealing with uh, how I pray and what I'm praying for, which points out something very important, that most of what I pray for, I probably shouldn't be praying for. Right. You know, uh, if I follow that one line, brother, and you know, what's interesting, Mark, is what I just said was he expounds upon this and he explains it later. Like later, and if you read that, it's telling you that this is still talking about physical need. Um, you know, that God's care for you. Um, now, if you, now let's go, let's take this back to Father and everything that that means. Uh, so, when I become a father, it's not only my physical needs that I need taken care of, it's the people I'm made responsible for, just as God has taken responsibility for me, I have responsibility for my wife and my children, and my right. grandchildren and everybody else. And what that responsibility is is the same, to make sure that they're safe, and that they're healthy, and that they're fed. That's my responsibility. Right. And if you grew up with a father, or not either not knowing, or a father who did not do that, then you do, you don't learn from comparison. You learn from contrast, contrast to who God is, and then you see, you know, you still learn the same yeah. thing. But yeah, um, it's interesting that he uses the father so many times. And then when we take that father out of this, trying to correct the behavior of men by changing who God is. Um, we lose some of that. Um, because like I said, that same responsibility is mine. I mean, and because I have that responsibility and you understand it, you understand God a little better. You know what I mean? You understand right. how he takes responsibility for what is his. He always has. Just like he, for, he takes responsibility for his children. If they need discipline, they dis he disciplines them. If they need help, he needs help. And you get that. Um, and you start to understand a little deeper.
I'm truly sorry for what men have done to women. Truly. I mean, I have a uh, wife, a daughter, you know, a mother. I get it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, by diluting or changing who God is, even monkeys with that verse, you know, it, it's it's powerful stuff. But yeah, Mark, honestly, yeah, you could use it as a reference as what, you know, I am the bread of life. Uh, whoever right. eats from me will never hunger again. But I don't believe that is what he's addressing here. I believe he is, if you remember, he, all these things are, this is what scripture says, this is what they do wrong, and this is, well, we've just finished that, and then he goes right into the only thing that has to do with our needs, our physical worldly needs, is this line. That's right. it. And out of like 14 lines, one line is that. But when I pray, it's 14 lines of that and only one line of the other stuff. So, <laughs> you're honest, it's the truth. I, I look back yeah. and this challenges me. It, it really does. And it should challenge all of us. Right. Uh, how, am I, how much different am I than the Pharisees? You know? Um, <sighs> so, not only is prayer an act of humility... Him teaching about prayer humbles me. So, yeah, I, I see it that way. But excellent question, Mark. Anything else, guys? If not, let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, it's such a blessing. It, it is mm, a divine joy to have you turn our face to the mirror and stand there with us and put your arm around our shoulder and say, look, this needs to change. Thanks, God, because you do that out of grace. Uh, you have no obligation to do that, but thank you. And thank you for the word that ministers to us and helps us to change, that humbles us. And let that word find a home in our hearts, and when it finds a home, let it change us so that we could be part of the solution, part of the light in this world instead of part of the darkness. I ask you to watch over my brothers and sisters, make them strong, wise, brave, and compassionate. Help them to glorify your name and what they think, what they do, and what they say. In Jesus' name, amen.